If you would, go ahead and take out your storybooks, and we're going to be in chapter 20 today. Um, chapter 20 has a great title to it. Chapter 20 is fantastic. It might be one of my favorite titles in, that, in this entire series, and it's called The Queen of Beauty and Courage. And I believe that title perfectly describes our hero today in this chapter. Her name is Esther. Have you heard of her before? Many of you coming in here today, long before we started the story, you know about Esther. You know Esther's story. Some of you are learning about her for the very first time in this series. And if this is your first time with us today, we are in a series called The Story. And what we're doing is we're studying through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, throughout the course of this year. We are two Sundays away from being done with the Old Testament. Can you believe it? We have just worked our way through it. We've been using this resource here called the story. What it does, it takes large portions of the Bible, takes them word for word, arranges them chronologically, so it reads in order through a timeline, and then it reads like a book in 31 chapters. So we've been going through a chapter a week, and if this is your first time and you want to jump in and go through it with us, man, we'd love for you to. We have your very own copy of the story at the Welcome Center. I invite you to pick it up on your way out of here today. It's our gift to you for coming today. It's also our invitation for you to come back. All you got to do is start reading, jump right in, and join us for the story. So we're on chapter 20, and we've been following the story that's in the Bible. We've been following God's upper story, his plan to to bring everybody into a relationship with him. He wants to do life with his creation. And we've seen how God has risen up the Israelites, his special people, and all the highs and lows of that relationship. Well, as you've stayed with us through this series, you know that last week, Um, We saw the Israelites, they were deported into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar, and they stayed there for 70 years. And that's where we meet guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then King Cyrus, 70 years after they've been throughout 70 years of captivity, King Cyrus says, it's time for you to go home. This was prompted by God as he let them Go. He's like, you need to go back to your own land and build your temple. Whoever wants to go is free to go. And about nine, about 50,000 Jews made the 900 mile journey back to Jerusalem and they began to work on the temple. So 50,000 of them go home. But guess what? A lot more decide to stay. They've been living in this land for 70 years. The majority of them were born in Persia. They're born into captivity. They have kind of blended in with that culture. A good number of them have not lost their cultural identity. They seem to maintain the fact that they were Jewish, God's chosen people. But they decided to maintain their heritage but live in Persia. This is the story. The book of Esther is the story of the Jews who stayed behind. You had 50,000 go rebuild the temple. This is the group that stayed behind. This is where we meet Esther. Now, something you might find kind of interesting about the book of Esther in the Bible is that it's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. Did you know that? He's not mentioned there. 
However, if you read all the chapters of the book of Esther, one thing that is very clear is you see God's fingerprints all over what's happening in this season. We clearly see in the book of Esther God's upper story where he saves the Israelites and once again keeps his promise to reconcile man to God. Now what makes chapter 20 so incredible, at least incredible to me, is that he's going to do the same thing that he's done in many other chapters and with many other people. He is going to use the most unlikely of people to accomplish his purposes. And we see that in Esther's life. So, under King Cyrus, 50,000 Jews return to Jerusalem and start building the temple. Now, fast forward 30 years into the future, okay? I just want you to understand the timeline. 70 years of captivity, Cyrus lets whoever wants to go home to go home. Now go 30 years into the future. Cyrus is no longer the king. They have a new king. His name is King Xerxes. And at that time, King Xerxes was considered one of the most powerful leaders in the known world. He had a reputation for extravagance, recklessness, arrogance. So he's just like any other king during that time, basically. This king had an ego that was out of control. And raise your hand if we've read about some kings whose egos were out of control. We've seen it. This king is out of control, and he is a king who absolutely loved to party. And so where we pick up in the story, King Xerxes is throwing a huge party. Seven-day-long party. And he, everybody, anybody who's anybody is at this party, and that's where we pick up the story. So if you look on page 276, that's where we're going to be. This is also the same as the book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, that's the Bible's way, nice way of saying he was pretty hammered, okay? He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. I'm not going to try to pronounce their names because I'll fail. He said to them, bring before me Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Are you wondering if he's a male chauvinist pig? Yes. This guy's out of control. Now, I've looked into this quite a bit. What exactly was he asking her to do? Because Queen Vashti doesn't want to go along with this. Most Bible scholars believe that what the king was commanding her to do is to present herself to all of his buddies wearing her crown. And that's it. Disgusted? Do you like this king very much? I don't. But that's what they believe was, was the command. You come here wearing nothing but your crown so we can stare at you. And it says on page 276, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious and he burned with anger. And we read that and we said, man, this queen's got some conviction about her, doesn't she? She's not going to do that. She wasn't about to become some object to be gawked at by all of her, her husband's drunken buddies. She refused. Now, something we don't quite, you know, it's hard for us to conceive, but back in this time, for you to refuse the king is certain death. You don't do that. This is a man who, with the snap of his fingers, could end your life or anybody's life. And so what she's actually saying by not coming, she's saying literally, I would rather die than do what you're telling me to do. Literally, I would rather die than do that. Death 
would be better than what you're telling me to do. That's what she was saying. And the king becomes very angry. And he has a choice to make. Do I kill her or what do I do with her? And after consulting his advisors, he decides, I'll just banish you. Now, this tells you how demented this time frame in, in history was. He had to consult his advisors about how to punish his wife for not doing what he said. This is a messed up world. It's hard to climb back into time, but we'll do our best to do that this morning. If you have not read chapter 20 yet, or even farther than that, if you've not read the whole book of Esther, you need to do that. It is a fascinating, page-turning read. But after the king banished the queen, he had to get a new queen. And so the search began. And I'm telling you, the way they went about searching for the next queen would have made great reality television today. Have you read the chapter? You know what I'm talking about. They sent out people all throughout the land, all 227 provinces of Persia, looking for the next queen. If they were to do that today, they would have sent a camera crew with every single one of these groups, and they'd have been interviewing people. Do you think you're going to make it? How do you feel about being chosen? And all that stuff. Oh, it would have been great reality television. And this is where we meet Esther. Because the Bible tells us that Esther was lovely, she was beautiful, and one of the king's attendants who was on this reality TV show to find the next queen, he takes notice of Esther and he's like, you know what, the king is going to love you. You need to be a part of this. And now again, going back to this day and age, it's not like Esther could have just said, I don't want to participate. That's not how it works. If you were commanded by the king to come and be a part of something, you had to go. She had no choice in the matter. Now, a little detail about Esther's life. The Bible tells that she was orphaned at a young age. She had an older cousin named Mordecai. Remember that name, Mordecai. Mordecai and Esther, they're the main, main people in chapter 20. Mordecai and Esther. Esther's orphaned at a very young age. Mordecai is her older cousin, who, in a sense, steps in as the father figure and raises her. So he sees her kind of like a daughter. He's definitely a fatherly figure. She sees him as such. And since Mordecai, as kind of like the father, you know deep down he wants to step in and say, you're not going, but he can't. It's not his decision. So he says, Esther, just do one thing. Don't tell anybody about where you're really from. Don't tell people that you're a Jew. Now, evidently, there was something about Esther. It wasn't obvious that she was part of the group that had been in captivity all these years. He says, don't tell anybody. It says on page 278, this is Esther chapter 2, that Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Do you kind of get the picture? He sees himself as a father. She gets taken away to be potentially the king's next queen. And he's hanging out as close as he can get to where she is at to try to find out any information about what's going on inside the gate. And he says, whatever you do, don't tell him you're a Jew. Why would Mordecai be so concerned about that? Why would he be so concerned about this? Well, if you think about the situation, yes, she is Jewish. Yes, she is free to go back to the promised land if she would like to. But she is living in a foreign land. 
And even though she's free to leave, it doesn't mean she's not discriminated against. Even though she's free to leave, it doesn't mean that, that they don't look at her different, that she's not persecuted, that she's not part of that group that was exiled here a hundred years before. She's part of that family. She's part of those people. Oh, there was a lot of disgust for these people still living in Persia. But now she has no choice to leave. She is stuck in this contest, and her future may already be written. So Mordecai's hanging out by the gate. He wants to know what's going on with, with her. And this is what's going on <clears throat> with her. She spends the next 12 months literally in a beauty spa. Did you read the Bible's description? Oil and myrrh facials, deep tissue massages, perfume and cosmetic treatments, Pilates and yoga. I don't know if there's Pilates and yoga. I, I just made that up. She was receiving, the Bible tells us, nutritious meals that were formulated precisely to enhance her physical beauty. She was given seven female attendants to wait on her every single need. And every single woman here is like, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. I'd sign up for that contest. She gets to do this for 12 months. That was the prescribed time. And at the end of her preparation season, then she and the other girls would be presented to the, to the king. And when it's Esther's turn to be presented to King Xerxes, he sees her for the very first time, and he's like, game over. Thank you, everyone, for playing. I have found my queen. The rest of you can pick up your consolation prizes at the door, and you can go home. And it's in that moment he names Esther the next queen of Persia, and it begs us to ask this question. How does an orphan Jewish girl living in exile find herself wearing the queen's crown? How does that happen? It's very simple. It's because God's got an upper story. That's how that happens. Esther was in the right place at the right time for a reason that extends all the way to you and to me. So Esther's the queen now. And King Xerxes is a happy camper once again. Everything seems to be going great for everybody. Until the day that the king decides to promote one of his noblemen into one of the highest positions in the entire land. And his name is Haman. That's another name that would be good for you to, to know. Haman. How can I describe Haman to you? Haman is one of the worst people that we find in the Bible. And that's not an understatement. Haman is pure evil. When I was trying to find a comparison to help us understand who Haman is like, I guess I would have to compare him to Hitler himself. Now, I'll, just, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more, but at this point in the story, when we read about Haman, you just visualize Hitler, and you've got him pegged. That's Haman. Haman is elevated to one of the highest positions 
in the entire kingdom. And the king literally delegates just about everything to Haman. Haman has all the power in the world, and he can do whatever he wants to do. And do you know what he wants more than anything else? The Bible tells us that when he walks around, what he wants people to do is when they see him coming and his crew, that everyone should bow down and worship him as he walks by. This is a different world, isn't it? And if you don't do it, he has the authority to kill you, so people do it. And that's what he wants more than anything with his power. I want people to bow down to me. So he walks through and people bow down. And on this one particular day, Haman is walking through the crowd. Everyone's bowing down. Can you get the picture? The streets are busy. Everybody stops. They bow down. And there's Mordecai saying, uh-uh, not going to do it. Mordecai is sticking out like a sore thumb. He won't bow down to Haman. And Haman takes notice of this. And it bugs him. It bothers him. And this happens again and again. Mordecai is like the only person that will never bow down to Haman. And I wonder, why wouldn't he do it? I mean, his situation is kind of interesting, to say the least, because of what Esther is doing and the power that Haman... Why wouldn't he do it? We don't really know what Haman's faith is like at this point. You know, it doesn't really... The Bible doesn't clue us in to how strong of a follower of God he is. He ha seems to have some knowledge, but a lot of Bible scholars believe that maybe one of the reasons why Mordecai would not bow down to Haman is the fact that Mordecai, understanding his cultural heritage as a Jew, and understanding that Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites. Does that name ring a bell through the story? The Amalekites for generations have been mortal enemies of the Jews. And maybe Mordecai is saying, you know what? I'm not going to bow down to my enemy. I'm not going to do it. That could have been part of the reason. Maybe, maybe there is still enough of Haman, or excuse me, of Mordecai, who still fears the Lord and understand that maybe God's got an upper plan and that uh, what got them in this predicament was their out-of-control idol worship. And maybe uh, Mordecai is saying, for me to bow down to that guy who thinks he's a god, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe God would frown upon that. We don't really know why he wouldn't go along with the crowd and bow down, but he just would not do it. And this really upsets Haman. On page 280, this is what happens next. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Anyway, Haman's like, I'm so mad at Mordecai, I'm just going to kill him. Oh, what group is he a part of? Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman's like, I'm not just going to kill Mordecai. What's the fun in that? I'm going to kill all of the Jews, every last one of them. I told you, he's a monster. So Haman goes to the king, and he talks him into exterminating all of the Jews throughout the entire country of Persia. You know all the ones that stayed behind? Kill all of them. Young, old, everybody, women, children, all everybody, kill them all. Page 280 is the details. This is also Esther chapter 3, verse 13. The king agrees, and so this is what happens. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. That probably doesn't make a lot of sense of when that is. Basically, this is how it breaks down. 11 months from today, we're going to carry this out. 
11 months from now. The, cur the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. This man just ordered the execution of potentially hundreds of thousands of Jewish people, and he sits down to have a drink with the king. Like, no big deal. Pure evil, personified, right here in Esther chapter 3. You know, when I was in Israel earlier this summer, we took about half a day to go visit the Holocaust Museum there. And I don't think it's possible to spend a few hours there and leave unchanged or unmoved because in graphic detail, through pictures and videos and thousands of artifacts and personal testimonies, this museum in Israel tells the story of Hitler's attempt to annihilate all of the Jews. And he successfully killed six million of them. Hitler was pure evil disguised as a man. And so was Haman. Their goals were the same. What they desired was the same. So Haman orders that all the Jews be killed, and then he sits down with the king to have a drink and says that the entire city was bewildered. None more bewildered than Mordecai. If you read the story, you know what he did when he hears about what's going to happen in 11 months. He tears his clothes off, his sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of great distress. And, 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 and he's just doing this physical thing of like, I cannot believe this is happening. Esther hears about Mordecai's distress, and so she sends messengers to find out what is going on with Mordecai. And Esther had no idea that her husband had just issued this terrible decree. And if you know anything about the Persian Empire, that once the king writes a law, seals it, it cannot be changed. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? Could not undo it. Same, same country, same rules. It's going to happen. And so Esther had no idea, and so Mordecai sends her a message, and he begs her, go talk to the king, save your people. Here's the problem. The king doesn't know that's her people. Remember, she kept that a secret. He doesn't know that the order that he just sent out was to kill his queen. Do you remember the one who said, game over, all the rest of you can go home now. Here's the second problem. And this is part of their culture. If she were to approach the king without being summoned, then she would be put to death. So the only way anybody could ever even approach the king is if he had asked for them to come. So that's a problem. He doesn't know that she's a Jew, and if she just shows up um, at his place to want to talk to him, and he doesn't accept it, then she'll be put to death. So naturally, I would think Esther would be a little reluctant to just knock on the king's door. But here's what happens next, page 282. Mordecai sent this answer back to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone uh, of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will still arise from another place. Interesting perspective. If you don't do this, Esther, 
Deliverance will come. Could it be that maybe this Mordecai is acknowledging that he understands something about God's upper story, about what he's going to do, that he has some knowledge about God's promises? We don't know for sure. But then he says this to Esther. And this is what we really need to pay very close attention to this morning. He says, Esther, who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. If you got a pen, circle that part in your story. Who knows, Esther? Maybe you're the queen right now. Maybe the only reason you're the queen is for such a time as this. Maybe, Esther, the only reason you're the queen is so God can use you to save his people. Let me ask you a question. How would it, how would it change your outlook on a great number of things if that was your attitude? How would that change the way you looked at your job? And you looked at your job and you said, you know, I, I didn't really see myself coming to Bentonville or Rogers or wherever. I, you know, I, I didn't ever plan to be in Northwest Arkansas, but maybe God brought me here for such a time as this. How would that change the way that you looked at your job? How would it change the way you, you look at where you live? Where, like, you know, uh, maybe you just thought you were buying a house. But could it be that maybe God had you in that neighborhood for that specific reason? To meet one family, one of your neighbors for such a time as this? I used to never think that way. And then things started to happen. I think I've shared this with you before. When my wife and I moved to Kansas City back in 2004, we, we bought a house. And to us, it was just like buying any other house that we bought before. And, and we moved in and we didn't know the previous owners. And then through uh, uh, the course of just some other relationships we had, we got to know the previous owners of our house. I didn't, have you ever had that experience? A little weird for us. And then all of a sudden we became friends. And then... They showed up at church. They didn't move very far. They just moved like a couple blocks over. They just got a bigger house. And then all of a sudden, we're having conversations about the Lord, and I'm baptizing them a few weeks later. And I look back on that now, and I'm going, I thought I was just buying a house, but I think maybe God had us buy that house for such a time as this. I don't know. So when I bought the house I'm in now, no, I'm kidding, I'm I still don't know the previous owner. What would change in your life if you began to see your job, where you live, the activities your kids are involved with as opportunities where you might say, who knows? Maybe for such a time as this, God has me here. That's what's going on with Esther. What, what if your greatest fear what if your heaviest burden right now was given to you for such a time as this? You know, you may never be in a position where obeying God is life or death like it is for Esther. I hope I'm never in that position. hate to disappoint you, but I'd rather not put my life on the line. I would hope that if it ever happened, I would be faithful. But I wonder, really... If we were to be bold, if we were to stand up, if we had for such a time as this moments in our life for, for the Lord, what is the worst that could possibly happen to us today? 
Maybe you, you take your Bible with you to work and you spend some time on your break reading it. What's the worst that could happen? One of your coworkers was like, oh, there's so-and-so. Yeah, he's a real Bible thumper. I mean, really, what's the worst that could happen? Maybe, uh, maybe you're one of those parents who, you know, may show up at the next school board meeting and maybe want to voice politely your opinion about, I don't know, maybe intelligent design being dropped from the curriculum. What's the, what's the worst that could happen to you? Oh, there's one of those Jesus freaks. I accept. Maybe um, you might think it's a little crazy that God may stir your spirit in the middle of the night and wake you up and put one of your friends on your mind and maybe that friend's having a rough go with things or maybe the marriage is in trouble and uh, you've got this idea that maybe the Lord planted in your spirit that says, man, maybe I can help. Maybe there's something I can do. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I should. Well, should I? Well, well, I, I? For such a time as this, what's the worst that could happen? So this is what Esther did. This is on page 282. This is Esther chapter 4, verse 16. She told Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I'm telling you, there's some bold stands being taken in this, in this chapter, isn't there? I will break the law for my people. And if I perish, I, I perish. Imagine what may happen in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our nations, in our world, if we would adopt Esther's commitment as our own. I will go to the king. I will do what the Lord wants me to do. And if I perish, I perish. If consequences come, consequences come. Well, there's a lot more to Esther's story. And I'm going to invite you, if you haven't, to go ahead and, and read all of chapter 20. Or if you're a little bit more ambitious, read every chapter in Esther, the book of Esther. You will love it. It's a page turner. And it will fill in a lot of the details that we are, are, are not spending a lot of time with here today. But here's what happened. Esther goes to the king without an invitation. Now, here's how this works in that day and age. If you show up at the king's door... If he is pleased to see you and he accepts your visit, he will extend his golden scepter out to you, and that's a sign, come on in. If he sees you and he's not pleased with you and he doesn't extend his golden scepter, then you are hauled off and, and executed. So it's quite the risk. She's like, I'm willing to risk it. So on this particular day, after they've, they've fasted for, for three days and prayed, she goes to the king, and the king kind of sees her hanging out by the door, and the king is pleased and that he sees Esther, and he extends his golden scepter. It's very much the same way in my house. Um, when, when my wife wants to talk to me, isn't that how it is in your house? He's very pleased to see her. He extends his golden scepter towards her. She comes in. And to make a long story short, Esther tells the king everything. Haman, you'll have to read the details of his story, but here's what happens to him. He built this 50-foot high pole because he thought he was going to take Mordecai and stick him on the top of it and pale him. Yeah, the Bible's not boring. <laughs> the king says, hey, 
there's already a 50-foot pole out there. Haman, that's for you. And he has, and he has Haman impaled on the pole 50 feet up in the, in the air. He's not a nice person. And through God's providence, the Jews are delivered and they're saved. To this day, in Jewish culture, 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 they celebrate this deliverance of, of what happened in Esther's day. They still celebrate this massive deliverance of the Jews by God. And we read this. And we go, Esther truly was made queen for such a time as this. I believe that God has a tremendous upper story and I want to encourage you today to look at your situation and ask this question. Am I here for such a time as this? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want...